Showtime a-holes, this is M from Verbal Diorama and- Hey everybody, Sexy Matt the Pharaoh Wizard here. Hey everyone, Rob here, your friendly neighborhood comic geek. This is Tyler from Too Young for This Hit. Hi, I'm Jason from the Drinkopedia Podcast. This is Troidal Power from the Power Playthroughs Podcast. Hi everyone, this is Becky, Troy's wife. Hi, I'm Arjuna Gonzalez from Fonts from the Level Editor. Robo Gonzalez can't be here right now because he's listening to the new Beyonce album. Hello, this is Sparks Witty from the Fake Nerd Podcast. And this is... Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. 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 This film is visually scrumtralescent, to to steal a phrase from Saturday Night Live. But it, I feel, lacks where the first one has more. I felt like the heart of this film was being forced on us. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 opens up with Kurt Russell out for a drive listening to Brandy with Peter Quill's mom. We find out right away here, or at least we get hinted at that that the actor uh or rather the character played by kurt russell is going to be peter quill's father as he takes meredith uh to a dairy queen and they go behind it and he shows her some weird alien plant that he's planted in the ground and she says she can't believe she fell in love with the spaceman so she knows right away that that uh that peter quill's dad is is not human um but yeah i, I think this is a cool opening scene i i think that this is a I think this is really another chance for Marvel to show off how their CGI de-aging technology can really do wonders because, man, that Dairy Queen, like, you can't even tell. It just looks exactly like it would have back in the 80s. My favorite action scene has to be the opening stinger for this movie. Uh, it's, got a great, it's got a great soundtrack. It's got a great, like, little, little baby group dancing, which is so classic Guardians, you know? We're distracted by this cute little little baby group. So many toys are going to be made out of him. And it's fun and it's exciting. And in the background, we get all these guardians. We get like this disheveled group who doesn't really have a great dynamic with each other. They're not really working out as a team, but it's okay and it's fun and it doesn't really matter. And they get it done in the end anyways, whatever way they choose to do so. Generally, really bad ways. So at the beginning of the film, when they're fighting the big old tentacle monster thing, Gamora asks Drax why he isn't wearing one of the, like, jetpack suits. And Drax is like, because it hurts. I have sensitive nipples. And the fact that that line gets a callback near the end of the movie makes it so much better. And Gamora goes, Groot, get out of the way. You're going to get hurt. <laughs> Groot just waves at her. And she's like, hi. <laughs> and then goes and, like, continues fighting um and then um Groot's still dancing and Drax falls down behind him 
And so Groot stops, and then every time Drax moves, Groot will start dancing again, and it's really freaking cute. Um, and then he notices a fly, and he finally catches it, and puts it in his mouth, and then Rocket runs over and is like, no, no, spit it out, come on, that's disgusting, and he takes it out of his mouth, and then, uh, <laughs> and then Groot just continues dancing more, and until Drax, um, falls on top of the stereo and ends up breaking it, and then Groot gets mad at him and tries to kick him, and it's adorable. <laughs> You can't not mention the dancing Groot scene, right? It's just so good. It's so much fun to get the music incorporated with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 right away. And it's just great to see little happy baby Groot dancing around, having a good time, while the Guardians just are in this massive battle with some interdimensional space monstrosity in the background. It's really fun. It's a it's a great, silly, comedic way to, to do the opening of the movie. And then it's got good action going on, too, and... And then we get a shift as the stereo jukebox thing that Rocket rigged up gets smashed, and it turns into an all-out action scene. I think my favorite action scene is right at the beginning with the uh, fight with the batteries and the monster. I love how the music ties into it and how each character's got a strong moment, and it really just sets your expectations for the movie, and I find it fantastic. So favorite action scene? There's so many good ones, uh, but it's hard to beat that opening action scene of the Guardians of the Galaxy fighting that giant squid thing. So this is just like the most perfect action comedy scene I've ever seen. So you've got Baby Groot dancing, and uh, all this action is happening in the background, and uh, different Guardians keep coming over to like check on him. Uh, Drax just gets thrown next to him, and Baby Groot stops dancing because uh, Drax gives him a very threatening look. And, yeah. So eventually Drax lands on uh, the speakers and music stops playing, so Groot just kicks his butt. And uh, (laughs) Drax decides he has to jump into the giant tentacle monster to kill it, and it's great. Drax decides that the only way they're going to beat this monster is if he attacks it from within, because he says his skin is too thick from the outside. I must go inside and... (laughs) Kamara and Peter are like, it doesn't make any sense. The skin's just as thick on the outside as it is on the inside. Like, what's he talking about? Um, so Drax dives down the thing's gullet, and then Gamora ends up slashing him open from the neck down, and we see Drax fall out, proclaiming that he beat the beast single-handedly. Oh, Drax. One of my favorite hero moments is at the end of the first action scene in the beginning of the movie, where Drax has decided that maybe he can kill the giant space squid Cthulhu creature from inside, and so he's jumped into its mouth, and he doesn't understand that the skin inside of it is, like, as tough or tougher than on the outside, and there's this shot of him inside the, like, very fake-looking esophagus or stomach, and he's just wailing away at it, stabbing in the sides of the walls, trying to make a hole, and... (laughs) It's hilarious. My favourite action scene. Um, well, that opening scene, the this juxtaposition of this lovely, sweet, happy, dancing baby Groot 
to the serious and all guardians battle against the monster in the background and it's all one long take it's just divine it also summarizes the movie perfectly because it has these comedic elements which take the forefront of this bright colorful summer superhero blockbuster but behind it deep down is this really serious emotional arc this fight between good and evil and the interpersonal relationship that just goes deep possibly as deep as Drax into that monster's stomach and then it all spills out you know just like that monster's guts it's really fantastically done The team's leaving the, the planet of the Sovereign having gotten paid for the job that they did, but Rocket stole some batteries that he wasn't supposed to take, so the Sovereign fleet comes after him, and, and the Sovereign have already been set up as kind of comedic. I mean, they're all gold and, and uptight and stuff, uh, except for that the, the High Priestess totally wants to blank Peter Quill. Um, so they've already been set up as comedy, but then uh, Rocket's talking about how he wants to, to kill so many people, and Gamora's like, you're not killing anybody. Those ships are all drones. And we find out that, that yeah, they're, they're all drone ships that are um, basically being piloted back from the Sovereign homeworld in, in a big arcade. I mean, like, complete with arcade sound effects. It's just the pilots are playing a video game. It's such a weird a weird way to represent drone flight, but I mean, it's funny. It kind of works. I have a bit of a thing for the Sovereign. Um, I think they're really great and I really love Aisha. Um, I think that they're really interesting because they're this superior race and they believe themselves to be so much better than everyone else. It's actually quite surprising they chose the Guardians to help them retain the batteries. You'd think that as the superior race, with all of these ships and resources, they'd probably be able to do it themselves. Um, but I guess the Guardian's reputation must be so impeccable after only a few months of galaxy saving. Um, I also love that the Sovereign fly their ships like they're in an arcade. It's just perfect. And, you know, if you were the superior race, that is totally what you'd do. Because you don't want to lose any of this superior race to, you know, anything as cumbersome as death. Um, I think it's great. When it comes to my favorite lines of dialogue, and it has to be favorite lines this time, you know, like I said in the Guardians of the Galaxy 1 episode, that nearly every line from Rocket Raccoon could be my favorite line of dialogue. Most of the lines from Drax, surprisingly for me in this movie, uh, could be among my favorite lines of dialogue. I think going into Guardians of the Galaxy 1, I kind of thought, all right, the actor for Drax is Dave Bautista, who I sort of know as like this one-note heel character from WWE, which I, I'm not a huge WWE fan, but I follow little bits and pieces of it. And so I didn't have super high expectations, but I don't know if it was the writing change or Bautista took acting lessons in the few years between movies, but I like Drax in the this movie a lot more than in the previous one and he's got some good ones peter and uh, rocket are kind of arguing over which of them is the best pilot and they keep taking over the main helm control i guess either of the seats at the front of the milano can control the ship so the two of them just keep switching back and forth which which seat is actually in control as they fly through this asteroid field so peter goes I've been flying this rig since I was 10 years old. And Rocket goes, I was cybernetically engineered to pilot a spacecraft. And Peter goes, you were cyber cybernetically engineered to be a douchebag. Gamora goes, stop it. And Rocket goes, later on tonight, you're going to be laying down and there's going to be something squishy in your pillowcase. 
And you're going to be like, what's this? And it's going to be because I put a turd in there. And Peter goes, you put your turd in my bed and I shave you. And Rocket goes, oh, it won't be my turd. It'll be Drax's. And Drax laughs really loudly. He goes, I have famously huge turds. The quantum asteroid field, by the way, is one of the coolest things that's ever been created. The way that the asteroids just warp in and out of space and time. That's nuts. It ends up taking out, like, all of the Sovereign ships that are in pursuit, except for one. So then we get a, a cut back to, to the Sovereign Arcade, where everybody's, like, crowded around the one guy who, ultimately, he gets killed. Uh, or his ship gets killed. And they're like, you suck. It's just, it's so, it's such a weird tone that this movie has. It's fun, but it's so weird. One thing I noticed is, okay, Ego's spaceship looks like an egg. Now, those of you who know 70s and 80s TV shows well enough might remember Mork and Mindy. And Mork's spaceship, if I remember right, is an egg. Is this some sort of weird Mork and Mindy reference that only people who watch TV from the 70s and 80s would get? Milano ends up crashing through uh, a gate. I guess that's how interstellar travel works in, in the Marvel Cosmic Universe. Um, but it crashes through it onto this planet, and, and following close behind it is uh, the ship that helped them get away from the last of the Sovereign fleet, um, which is piloted by, by, by Kurt Russell. There he is. It's Ego. And he proclaims that he is Peter's dad. So in terms of dangling threads, uh, there isn't much that's left opened at the end of this movie, but this movie does serve to help a lot of our dangling threads from the first one. Uh, the big one being, who is Peter's dad? As discussed before, he's Kurt Russell. He's a bad dad, uh, but he's an angel of light, and as we know in the comics, he is not human, uh, making Peter's ancestry or genealogy, his 23andMe being not all human is some god so that's cool he's half angel and i think that's really great of james Gunn to finally give us the answer and explore that story and explore the background of why did peter get abducted in the first place why is he out in space and why hasn't he returned to earth and then also you know it it really matches well with the source material that he is not completely of earth Oh man, Kurt Russell. Uh, it was so cool to see that Kurt Russell is in this movie. I will admit though that I had him just typecast as Snake Plissken in my head and so for a little bit in the movie I was kind of going like, oh come on, please answer something with a question, please answer something with a question. Infinity Stones. Metal Gear. Um, I just wanted to mention the music. Um, the music is so perfect in these films and I think James Gunn does a fantastic job of making the music fit the scene and I just want to mention specifically Fleetwood Mac's The Chain because it's so good in this movie it feels so organic to the plot um, and it's featured twice first when Peter Gamora and Drax leave the others to go off with Ego and I think that's really smart, putting it there, to sort of making a point that he can never break the chain, even though they're separated. And then the final battle with Ego, which kind of still affirms that he can't break the chain. And I just think it's a wonderful piece of music and it's, it's just perfect. I 
I really like Yondu's story in, in this movie. It starts off with him. First time we see him, he's on this, uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a prostitution planet, I guess, but they're robots. So it's a little less bad. It's weird. I don't like that. This is where he is. Um, but, but we get kind of a glimpse at what's going to happen with him right away because he sees Sylvester Stallone outside who's playing the the leader of another group of Ravagers and we get some backstory here we find out that there's a hundred groups of Ravagers um uh Yondu leads one so so kind of his his ship and the fleet that goes with it is one group um but it turns out that his group has been exiled because of Yondu um breaking the Ravager code and and specifically what Sly yells at him is that uh Ravagers don't deal in kids I should say that. Let, let me try a slide here. Ravagers don't deal in kids. That's that's a terrible slide, but I'm sorry. I had to do it. Compared to the first movie, the character that's given the most additional development in this film is Yondu. Um, and Yondu's really interesting because he is basically the emotional core of this movie. Um, we learn that he refused to deliver Peter to Ego. That was his original task when he picked Ego up um, back in um, this first movie. Um, and he did this because he realised that Ego was murdering his children. Um, and I guess it just shows that even Ravagers have limits. Um, he ended up breaking the Ravager code to deliver the offspring to Ego in the first place. Um, and for that, he is publicly berated by Stakar. Um, the Yondu of this movie is incomparable to the Yondu of the previous movie. This is also uh, another movie with a Howard the Duck cameo. I've read a few Howard the Duck comics in my day, and it would be really cool to see Howard the Duck in a bigger role in one of these movies. So... Please, can I have some Howard the Duck? Please. Ultimately, uh, Quill, Gamora, and Drax set off with um, with uh, Ego to go visit his planet and with Mantis, while Rocket and Gamora and uh, Baby Groot and Nebula stay behind because they got Nebula was their their payment for the job they did for the Sovereign. She's their prisoner right now. And we get this cool scene where the Ravagers have decided to go after Quill, um, they think, to to bring him in. Uh, we're going to find out that's not quite the case. But we get this great action scene. It's one of my favorites in this movie of Rocket basically destroying all of the Ravagers' troops. My favorite action scene, it's probably the, like, stealth action scene slash ambush after they've crash-landed on Burhurt and Rocket has set up all the different traps for the Ravagers as they're trying to reach the ship, including that weird pulse-not-quite-landmine thing that when it activates, it pushes everybody up into the air, and so you have this, like, wide shot from the forest of Ravagers going up into the air and falling back down and up into the air and falling back down, that whole like first half of the scene where Rocket is deploying all sorts of traps on them, it reminded me a lot of Home Alone, but cooler because it's and everything is cooler. Unfortunately, he ends up getting surrounded by Yondu and the rest of the Ravagers, and uh, it looks like he's gonna have to give in 
to giving up the batteries, but Yondu doesn't want to bring in the Guardians because he's like, hey, if we help kill the Guardians of the Galaxy, everybody's going to hate us even more than they already do, which is kind of a compelling point. Um, but but the rest of the Ravagers think that maybe he's just gone soft on them. Maybe it's just because it's Quill and he always gives Quill another chance. And just as they're debating this, Nebula's gotten Groot to, to set her free and she shoots Yondu's fin off and uh, turns, turns Rocket and Yondu and Groot over to the Ravagers. Back on Ego's ship, they, they finally reached Ego's planet, uh, and he introduces himself kind of formally. Gamora asks him, you know, what he is, because he owns a planet and can destroy spaceships. What's going on? Who are you? And he says, I'm what's called a celestial, sweetheart. And Peter goes, a celestial? Like a god? And he goes, mm, small g, son. That's right. Ego is a celestial, just like a... The, the head of a Celestial that is nowhere in the first Guardians of the Galaxy, we've met another Celestial. This time it's Ego. And we find out shortly after, we found out shortly after that Ego is a living planet. He has this weird diorama of himself in his walkway into his mansion, I guess. Ego is giving them his whole backstory and talking about how he created the form of life as I perfectly imagined it. And... Drax asks, did you have a penis? And Quill is all grossed out about that because he doesn't want to think about his parents having sex to have him. And Drax is like, why? My father would tell the story of impregnating my mother every winter solstice. It was beautiful. Peter uh, is getting more backstory on, on Ego and the Celestials. And Ego teaches him how to summon some electricity, lightning energy stuff in his hands and form it into a ball. And he gets to play catch with his dad. Ah! My favorite villain moment has got to be just when Ego is playing ball with Star-Lord. It really kind of takes your expectations of what this villain's going to be. Like, you don't even really expect him to be a villain. You're still waiting for that to develop. And once he reveals himself as the villain, that moment becomes even stronger because you can see how manipulative he is and how uh, third-dimensional and how outside the box he's thinking when he's coming up with his plan and, you know, how much he's using Star-Lord. It becomes a very strong moment. I also love the fledgling relationship that's shown between Peter and Gamora and the fact that she's shown dancing with him. She's still the most feared woman in the galaxy, but she's slowly learning to love and that's super sweet. One of my favorite lines here is uh, Ego is explaining to Peter that he has the power of creation um, thanks to the light at the heart of Ego's planet. He can make things just like ego has and, and peter's getting all excited about these statues he's gonna build he just goes i'm gonna make some weird shit and i love it because like yeah man if you were given the power of a god to create whatever you wanted you'd probably make some weird shit too A runner-up villain moment for me would be the brutal, brutal murder of Yondu's crew when they're jettisoned into space. The effects of the mutineers just staring at them and making fun of them as they're drifting off into death is 
really, really terrible and kind of makes it worth it when they get their comeuppance later in the film. This might also go in my favorite villain moment. After the Ravager mutiny has happened... <laughs> pull it together, Arjuna, pull it together. And the new leader of the Ravager band has announced his new name. Taserface! And Rocket Raccoon is laughing at him over the name. He says, oh, I'm sorry. So do you shoot tasers out of your face? And Taserface says, it's metaphorical! That's a very, um, like Captain LeChuck from Monkey Island type of line to have, and I greatly appreciate it. Nebula has made an agreement. Basically, the Ravagers are going to sell off Rocket and Groot and Yondu, and she's going to get 10% of the profits along with a ship. Uh, so Kraglin has taken her to his ship and says, you know, here you go. It's got Ego's plan. It's already set as the destination. We'll send you your money once we've been paid. And he asks what she's going to do with her share. And, and here's where we really get uh, kind of a, a dark look into Nebula's backstory. As a child, my father would have Gamora and me battle one another in training. Every time my sister prevailed, my father would replace a piece of me with machinery, claiming he wanted me to be her equal. But she won, again, and again, and again, never once refraining. So after I murder my sister, I will buy a warship with every conceivable instrument of death. I will hunt my father like a dog, and I will tear him apart slowly, piece by piece, until he knows some semblance of the profound and unceasing pain I know every single day. One of the things that really bothers me about this movie is the Ravagers are so dang mean to Groot. This is a, like, fun, colorful, like, explosion of energy movie. It's, it's, it's fun. Granted, a lot of people die in it, but, but even the deaths are, like, treated for laughs. But then there's, there's these scenes of the Ravagers being mean to Groot, where they've got him in a birdcage and they're torturing him, and then they, like, put a little suit on him and he looks so cute, but they're all chanting mascot at him and he hates it and they're pouring stuff on his head. Stop being mean to Groot. He's too cute. Also, Yondu and Rocket have a really interesting partnership. Um, they are kind of brought together and Yondu sort of quickly realises that Rocket is exactly the same as he is with this fear of intimacy and being unable to love. You know, they're both as damaged as each other, but at least Yondu realises it and sees it in Rocket. He's the one who has to break it to Rocket that that's the case. Um, and... I know that he kills a lot of dudes in this scene, but the scene in the Ravager ship when he finally gets his fin and arrow back, accompanied by come a little bit closer on the PR system, it's just perfection. It's so great. The variable speed slow motion that is kind of going and then you get this streak of red flying about in the background. Oh my God, it's brilliant. Groot ultimately helps... Uh, Yondu and Rocket escape by finding the fin. It's a great sequence of him. They, they send him to go get the fin and he comes back with like an eye and then a, he goes and he comes back with a desk and then he goes again and comes back with a toe. There's just a bunch of stuff here. It's all really good. But ultimately, Yondu's got uh, a fin that lets him control his arrow and he just takes out everybody on the ship. Actually, wait, Groot doesn't even bring him the fin. It's ultimately Kraglin brings it because he realizes like, oh man, I didn't mean for this to happen. I'm still loyal to you. Let's get out of here. 
Um, but anyway, Yondu uses his arrow just to, to wreck everybody on the ship. And it's a, it's a really cool looking scene. Speaking of my favorite action scene is definitely the killing of the mutineers by Yondu. Once he has his fin back, that's such an excellently shot scene. It works so well and it feels so good because you hate them so much after what they did to the rest of the crew. You saw how just bloodlust filled those guys are and and how much they enjoyed it and so watching Yandu take them out feels so justified and excellent but it suffers in in something that i think a lot of this action scenes in this movie suffer from which is they're just a little bit long um i you know the the action in the guardians movies isn't ever bad but i'm mostly watching these movies for the comedic side of things and sometimes the action, like they, they do a good job for the most part of breaking up the action with comedy beats, but sometimes they just go a little too far into the action side of things. It's like, okay, I get it. Like his arrow can wipe out everyone on the ship. It's a little overpowered. Like if this was a D&D game, the dungeon master done screwed up by giving that item to the player. But yeah, it just it just goes a little long. Ultimately though, they take out the Ravagers, they, they take part of the ship and blow the rest of it up. And uh, they set off through a series of jumps to get Tigo's planet to try to save Quill and the rest of the Guardians. Um, so the there's actually two Stanley moments in this movie. Um, so Stanley is um, hanging out with the Watchers, so it like pans in um, to the Watchers, and Stanley's sitting on this planet, like barren, nothing else, and he's saying. Oh, man. Anyway, before I was so rudely interrupted, at that time, I was a Federal Express man. I like Mantis. I think uh, having sort of Mantis and Drax have those moments is great. One of my favorite moments is in the whole movie is Mantis touching Drax when he speaks of his family. Um, I think that's one of the most powerful moments in the film that kind of gets overlooked a lot. She's able to show the pain that Drax feels all the time about losing his family, and yet he himself is so stone-faced on the outside, he displays none of it uh, to anyone, and you realize how deep, deep set in that pain is, and that he just carries it with him every day, and I felt that was very effective through seeing Mantis express it while Drax is just sitting there calmly. It really tugs at the heartstrings. I love it a lot because I think Drax is a really fantastic character and I think that's a really strong emotional window into him. And she feels all the raw emotion in him. He feels his loss still so deeply from losing his wife and child and she starts to sob and it's a really beautiful scene that kind of really hammers home this, the love that is within this man. Gamora is starting to realize that there's something off about Ego, so she's trying to get a message out to to Rocket to to you know basically be like, "Yo, come pick us up. We don't have a ship." Uh, when she hears another ship coming in, it's Nebula, and we get this action sequence of basically Nebula in a spaceship versus Gamora, and Gamora wins because she always wins. Uh, she ends up hefting up a broken off piece of the spaceship, a gun that's like thirty feet long, and carrying it on her shoulder while firing it at Nebula. It's ridiculous, but I love it. It's so cool. And then Nebula's like in the spaceship. It's about to explode and Gamora drags her out of it. And after it explodes, Nebula manages to get Gamora pinned down. And she's like, I won, I won. And Nebula's like, oh my gosh, you won. Big deal. It's not about it. And Gamora's like, or Nebula is like, 
You were the one who was always pushing to win. I just wanted a sister. And it was really heartbreaking. They're such a broken family. This pays off on a profound emotional moment that was set up when she explained to Kraglin her relationship with Thanos and why she wants to kill him so badly. That whole section where she explains how he tore pieces out of her and replaced them with machinery. And now we see how brokenhearted she is that Gamora never seemed to hold back and consider her. All she ever wanted as he took and took pieces from her was for Gamora to think of her just once and let her let her win to spare her. She just wanted her sister to care about her and it's created so much resentment that she feels Gamora never even looked at her that way. And I thought that was a really strong moment. I think Nebula has a strong secondary arc to what's going on with Rocket and Peter in this film. Um, for Gamora sitting in this quiet field on Ego's home planet and then being attacked by a vengeful Nebula. This scene is so great because it really hammers home how awful Thanos treated them both. Gamora might have been his favourite daughter, but she was still as abused as Nebula was. That realisation of what Thanos constantly did to Nebula hits home for Gamora. They are sisters, and they need to start acting like sisters and not the mortal enemies that Thanos made them into. I like the sort of sister interaction between Nebula and Gamora. It's hard to buy into the uh, Gamora, sorry, Gamora. I keep calling her Gamora. It's how I always said her name in my head. Between her and Star-Lord, even though we know there's supposed to have been this period of time in between the films. You were the one who wanted to win and I just wanted a sister. With perfect raw delivery by Karen Gillan. And it just shows how determined Gamora was as a child and how vulnerable Nebula was. If only they'd stuck together back then, maybe neither would be so emotionally damaged now. My favourite villain moment is probably Ego, when he's talking with Peter and using Brandy as the metaphor of what their celestial power is. Uh... My life, my love, and my lady is the sea. Kurt Russell plays that scene so excellently, and it's so diabolically manipulative for him to use this music that was linked between the him and his mom and now Ego to get at Peter and, and make him see things the way Ego wants him to see them. And I thought that was really, really well done, the way that he says, Peter, you know, you, you could be lured away, but your life, your love, and your lady is the sea. You can't leave that behind. That's why I had to leave your mom. And that's just, that's so messed up. Um, and later when he normalizes the expansion moment, how he talks about it like this next step in his natural being, it's what he was made to do. He makes that so uncomfortably convincing just because he sees it as such a natural progression. And that's really unnerving. And I, again, Kurt Russell, I think, does a really great job delivering that. And the transition into David Hasselhoff is, is menacing, honestly. It, it's so twisted the way that he uses music and imagery to get at Peter and get him to feel the way that Ego wants him to. Ego thinks he's got Peter ready to go. He, um, basically starts explaining his whole purpose, which is to take these seeds that he's planted on a bunch of other planets and uh, cause them to grow and and take over everything so that everything in the universe will become a part of him. It's messed up. And he's got some weird, some kind of whammy on Peter where he touched his forehead and Peter's eyes turned all galaxy style. And he's like, yeah, I'm your disciple. I'm going to do this. But while this is happening, uh, Gamora and uh, Nebula have found this cavern under the planet full of skulls and it turns out that 
Peter wasn't the first kid that Yondu kidnapped for uh, for Ego. He went around the whole universe impregnating people everywhere, and Yondu was taking them to him over and over and over again. But none of them had the celestial gene, and Peter's the first one that does. Now, Yondu didn't know this when he was taking kids to him. He didn't know that, that Ego was essentially killing them when they were worth anything to him. Um, Ego uh, is obviously the main villain of the piece, and Ego was a really interesting choice for Peter's father. Obviously, the comics are different. I kind of feel like Kurt Russell's casting was inspired. Um, the scenes set in the 70s are really brilliant because you can genuinely believe that Peter's mother, Meredith, would have been charmed by the same guy who played Snake Plissken and, and Jack Burton. He's totally charming and so handsome. And then for him now, he's literally an egotistical maniac. You know, the name Ego is kind of perfect. The fact he's sowing his seed across the galaxy and and only Peter not only still exists, but can also, he's the only one who can handle this celestial power. Um, the fact he murdered all of his other children is a little bit glossed over. Um, we don't actually see that much of it. And I think that's done on purpose because essentially this is a family movie. Um, but it's actually really important in the setup of just how deranged Ego actually is. He's willing to do whatever it takes to rule the galaxy. But Peter isn't. And that's what makes Peter great. And that's what makes Peter human. But it's not that that, that convinces Peter to turn. It's that Ego is explaining that he really did love uh, Peter's mom. Like more than all the others. So much so that he killed her so that he wouldn't be distracted by his love for her. He put a tumor in her head. It's actually a really great callback to Meredith and how she was the dominant parent to Peter, and now she's the dominant force that makes Peter a good person. My favorite hero moment and my favorite villain moment happen at roughly the same time. So uh, Ego's telling Peter what it really means to be a celestial and his whole plan of taking over the universe, making it all him. And Ego tells Peter, it really hurt me to put that tumor in your mom's brain. And Peter just goes, you did what? And just starts shooting the shit out of Ego, like destroys him. Ego says it so like coolly, like he's so evil. He's so bad. Like he's... Uh, but I really like this moment because it shows you who Peter is. Like, it's a good character moment for him. He's so rash. He just, like, turned. He just did, like, a 180. When Peter rejects Ego's powers after learning he killed his mother, um, I mean, knowing your father killed your mother is bad enough, but he intentionally put a tumour in her head, knowing it would make his son motherless, presumably so it would be easier for Yondu to take him. Peter's a man who's suffered the premature loss of his mother for so long and only has the music to remember her by. He finds his biological father, finally, and finally feels like he's loved, only to find out he's like an infanticidal celestial hell-bent on taking over the galaxy. Defeating Ego means defeating his biological father, someone he's waited for so many years to find. It proves the point that blood doesn't mean family, and found family is a theme throughout this whole movie. The big bad of this movie is Kurt Russell. 
just the person, not the character. Uh, just joking. He is Ego, the living planet, which I think at first, if we were following the MCU, was kind of like, okay, so they're going to fight a planet, a living planet. But I think James Gunn's did really well. And I think he did it really well also with the whole parallel of this entire film. It's dads. Are they good? Are they bad? They're dads. And he's a bad dad. <laughs> he's a real bad dad. Uh, he tries to eat his son or something like that. I don't remember. Uh, but they fight and they punch on and he becomes David Hasselhoff. And I think that's a really great villain moment. My favorite villain moment might be the scene after Ego has told Quill that he planted the brain cancer in his mother and Quill you know, shoots him, blows him away in several different places. And Ego starts to reconstitute himself. And before we've had Kurt Russell, but in the middle of the line, he says, I tried so hard to find the form that best suited you. And this is the thanks I get. And like in the middle of the line, he's turned into David Hasselhoff. Uh, uh, excuse me, Zardu Hasselfrau. That is definitely one of the better moments for sure. If only just because it's Zardu Hasselfrau. <laughs> uh, my favorite hero moment is Yondu getting Rocket to recognize that he knows exactly who he is because they are the same. The whole attack that Yondu brings on Rocket, the way that they're both broken because of the things that they've gone through, and the arc that they've built for Rocket in this film where he's recognizing how he pushes people away, and that's exactly what Yondu has done, and Yondu's calling him on it because Yondu's kind of coming to the end of this arc where he realizes how far he's pushed away Peter, and he's seeing this in Rocket, and he kind of wants to see a Rocket on this better course. I think that's a really powerful moment. Rocket kind of gets one of the best character arcs throughout this film, and a lot of that is helped by the fact that Yondu is is pushing him to recognize things in himself that Rocket doesn't want to recognize. And I thought the, the moment where they have that argument on the ship and Rocket's like, you don't tell me, stop talking, I, knock it off. And Yondu's just coming at him and saying, we are exactly the same. I know you because you're me. Uh, that's so good. And I think that's a great hero moment. Fortunately, just as Peter's about to be killed, or maybe as the galaxy is about to be killed, the stakes in this one are weird again, because basically what's happening is those plants are expanding and taking over land, but also it seems to be hurting Peter, or maybe Peter's just going to be a prisoner forever. In any case, Yondu and Rocket smash through and save Quill right at the last moment. We go into the epic final battle, which is the Guardians of the Galaxy versus the Sovereign while they try to blow up the planet. It's another big action scene. It probably goes on longer than it needs to. The scene with the red button just makes me laugh and laugh. It's a it's a really long scene, but they do it so well with, you know, the whole tape and coming back to baby Groot. And it's really, really brilliantly done. Um, it's actually really sad that he's a teenager now uh, because that just means he's less cute. After Ego reveals himself to be an evil celestial, uh, Mantis is trying to put him to sleep and Drax is trying to give her encouragement. And he says, you don't have to believe in yourself because I believe in you. And then she's able to do it. And then immediately after, Drax goes, I never thought she'd be able to do it with how weak and skinny she appears. And yeah, Drax is great. 
Another contender for favorite action scene might be in the final battle with Ego, where Ego is turned into some sort of solid block to slam himself into Quill, and Quill has turned himself into Voxel Pac-Man, yes! I love the silly, ridiculous pop culture references in this movie. It's like Ready Player One, but good. Drax is holding Mantis and Peter slaps one of those like jetpack thingies on his back to like help him get away. And Drax just screams, ah, oh, my nipples. And it's so funny. I love it. A runner up to that would be the, um, the montage moment for Peter when he's facing Ego and he has the visions of flying with Rocket and Groot and laughing with Drax listening to music with his mom, Gamora listening to music with him, which is one of the best emotional moments from the first film, Yondu teaching him how to shoot those things, driving Peter, his family, uh, swirling up inside of him, and he takes on Ego with the full force of that, saying, you know, you shouldn't have squished my Walkman and killed my mom, and, and slams that full power, and the music hits. It's, it's a really great moment. It's not bad ever, it's just, it's a lot of bright colors and explosions, there's spaceship battles, then everybody's on foot, and Peter starts using his powers to make a giant Pac-Man thing, and ultimately, everybody gets out except for Peter and Yondu are the only two that left, they, they beat Ego, Ego's gonna explode. And it's just Yondu and Peter on the planet, and there's one spacesuit and one jetpack thingy left. Yondu comes swooshing in through explosions and grabs Peter with his jetpack. And he's like flying up away from the planet. And he goes, He may have been your father, father boy, boy, but he wasn't your daddy. daddy. I'm sorry I didn't do none of it right. I'm damn lucky you're my boy. <laughs> I, I cry every time I watch that scene. It's so sad and so funny. My favorite hero moment in this film is... Well, obviously, there's Yondu's sacrifice. Uh, I feel like that has to be put at the top. Yondu doing what he does for Peter at the end and giving his own life because he never felt like he did any of it right. That's kind of got to be the biggest hero moment in this film. My favorite hero moment of this has got to be Yondu's sacrifice. It really shows a growth of character from what we saw in Volume 1 up until now and how much he's learned and developed. And it's just a beautiful moment. Yondu telling him that Ego was his father but he wasn't his daddy gets me every time. The fact he ends the movie himself as a de facto father to baby group kind of gives me circle of life vibes. You know, Peter is the kid he thinks of as a son. Um, Yondu is surprisingly vulnerable in this movie and honestly, Michael Rooker will be sorely missed from the franchise. And Peter goes, What? Yondu? What are you doing? You can't. Yondu, no, no. And then I start crying and I just cry through the rest of the movie. We get um, a scene where they're, they're setting up Yondu to be cremated. Um, we get all, all the Guardians kind of patching things up um Kraglin gives peter uh a zune <laughs> the new hot technology from earth loaded with 300 songs and starts uh peter starts listening to 
uh, some Cat Stevens on it, because if you're if you're going through some daddy issues, Cat Stevens is exactly what you need to be listening to. Father and son is also perfectly placed for Yondu's funeral. Um, I kind of feel like any other movie would have placed that with the Peter Ego bonding scene, because Ego is the biological father. But this movie does such a great job of showing that blood relations mean nothing in the grand scheme of things. I'd be remiss to not talk a little bit about the ending, because I think the ending of the film is one of the most powerful moments in any of the MCU films, period. It's got Quill's speech, which is heartbreaking in itself, uh, talking about how he recognizes Yondu as his father and, and seeing something that was always there, but he didn't really see what it was. And that brings Nebula and Gamora to um, kind of reconcile, because Gamora now sees that in Nebula, and she, she approaches her and has a conversation about that. It's also bringing Rocket's story full circle. I mean, the ending is just so good. It it gets me every time. And they cremate Yondu and send his ashes into space. And um, the Ravagers show up. And uh, all the other Ravagers are there. And they had said before that you'll never hear the horns of something or other, or the lights of such and such over your over your body or over your grave. And, and that's what the Ravagers are here for. And it's just this epic, um, epic fireworks display, basically, as his ashes form an arrow and, and go off into space. The Ravagers coming to Yondu's funeral, which, by the way, giving him the horns of freedom and the colors of a gourd, that's the coolest stuff ever. That's the stuff I want to hear over my grave when I die. Uh, the beauty, uh, visually, of Yondu's passing, the way the colors work, the, the way that his ashes turn into the arrow, and all the Guardians being together and looking on this moment as a family, and Rocket seeing everyone care, and Peter reassuring him of that, bringing all those natural arcs that have been in this film so full circle. It's just really, really good. My favorite line of dialogue has to be uh, the one that my friends use to tease me because I tear up every time, but it's at Yondu's funeral and Rocket simply says, he didn't scare them away, even when he was mean to them, and stole batteries he didn't need. It really builds into the family dynamic that these movies have built up, and I just find it such a beautiful tear-jerking moment. My favorite hero moment might be the one that probably most people are going to talk about in this episode at the end, which is Yondu's funeral. When you see it as the conclusion of Yondu's character arc, and he turns from the scummy space pirate into this guy who's, like, admitting that he's never done the right thing in his life before, and he does this one act to, like, redeem himself... And he says at the end as he's going into space and he knows they don't have a second spacesuit, that Ego might have been Quill's father, but he wasn't a daddy. I mean, I'll, I'll, that whole sequence there, I'm, I'm just going to come out and admit it. I did tear up a little at the end and you all did too. Every last one of you. Admit it. You all did. Like, I think up until this movie... Like, the funeral for Spock at the end of Star Trek Two was probably the biggest tear-up moment in all of sci-fi. This has surpassed it. For sure. Um, 
Chris Pratt is really great in this movie and I know he's mainly known for being comedic and he's really, really funny in this movie, but he radiates through his face the pain of losing his mother and his adoptive father. Um, and that's really, really special. And then it ends. And then later on um, in the credit scenes, um, he goes, hey, fellas, wait, where are you going? You're supposed to be my lift home. How will I get out of here? Hey, ah, oh, gee, I've got so many more stories to tell. Ah, oh, guys, oh, gee. And also, true fact, the Guardian's Inferno, uh, which is the song by uh, Zadu Hasselfrau, I mean, David Hasselhoff, at the end, is my ringtone. And it has been ever since the movie came out. I'm kind of refusing to change it because I can't find anything in the world that's as brilliant as The Guardian's Inferno. Um, it's just a joy. And all of the cast are in the video and it's on YouTube and it's just perfection. Like I would recommend anyone watch that. My favourite dangling thread. I, there aren't a whole lot of compelling dangling threads in this movie at the end. I mean, okay, yeah, there's that scene at the end where the Sovereign weirdos are like, oh, they've got a new birthing pod for some new creature, Adam. All right. My favorite dangling thread, of course, has got to be the introduction of Adam Warlock or the hint that Adam Warlock is coming. A lot of people, myself included, expected him to show up in Infinity War, but I really hope they build on that in Volume 3. I think he's going to be a fantastic character and a beautiful addition to the MCU. Um, I thought it was interesting to include the, the Sovereign the way that they do and have them creating... Uh, at the end, they say, I shall name him Adam, which is in reference to Adam Warlock, who was actually created on Earth and was absolutely integral to the overall story of Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet and the Infinity Gems in the comic books. Like, those two are intrinsically tied because they are in everything that Jim Starlin writes, the guy who wrote, created Thanos, wrote the Infinity Gauntlet comic that is the loose basis for um, the Infinity War film. Uh, favorite dangling thread well guardians being uh, a cosmic entity is so uniquely placed in the mcu and it can only really reference the other guardians movies at this point which it does through plenty of clawbacks i mean the threat of thanos is looming and gamora and nebula are strategically placed knowing him the most coming into infinity war especially since the end of this movie they're in allegiance with each other and we know nebula is gunning for thanos um, the movie ends with the reveal of Adam Warlock, or Aisha planning Adam Warlock. It's pretty obvious that he'll be in Volume 3, but in what capacity? Who knows? I think James Gunn tends to play his cards quite close to his chest, and I also feel that this is the sort of movie that's so similar yet so different from the first that I kind of feel like they might take the third one in a completely different direction and so who knows what they'll end up doing with Adam Warlock but also we're getting a Zune now so does that mean we're going to get a soundtrack for volume three with 300 songs because that would just be perfect I just love Guardians of the Galaxy volume two so much 
just the infighting with the team and this family dynamic that is built up and the subtext of fatherhood and family and just these beautiful moments uh, built into this awesome action scenes and this great space opera. It is one of my favorite MCU movies and possibly one of my favorite movies of all time. So there's, there's seeds here that are planted. I'm excited to know that James Gunn is back on for Guardians 3. I, I hope that we get kind of an ending to that story. I mean, if they want to keep making them, awesome. But I feel like they we can see an ending to that story or, or something that will help spread it out. Again, it felt like it was a film that maybe we needed before we got to Infinity War, but certainly not as much as some of the other films. I don't think it was that necessary of a stepping stone. It just got to further the story of really Star-Lord. Uh, I mean, we have some things with the other, but it's kind of like, they're there now, they're family now, let's move on and make more jokes. And I'm absolutely okay with that. It felt like another good episode of, you know, it was the second season of the Guardians of the Galaxy TV show, and that is absolutely fine with me. I think while this movie is not as good as the first Guardians, I think we can all agree on that, it is still a great film in the sense that if you've invested yourself in the Guardians in the first place, this really serves to all supplement, to supplement all of their stories, to really grow them as characters, and that's the p- whole point of the MCU. It's kind of like this extended telethon. Uh, it, it's not a fully complete movie on its own, but it really helps to serve to make these characters more fleshed out, which always works well if we get a Guardians three. So at the end of the Guardians of the Galaxy 1 episode, I did say that it was my third favorite non-serious movie. I think now my third favorite non-serious movie would be these two movies in the same spot because I feel like it. Yeah, it's really good. I really like Guardians of the Galaxy 2, um, but I forget how touching its ending is. I like it for being a fun, silly, like, cartoon of an action movie, um, but it's also got a really good heart. And it's, it's especially heartbreaking to watch it now after having watched Civil War, you know, two days ago, because it's another movie about all of our heroes are kind of fighting with each other. But in this one, they're, they're just bickering. They're not fighting to the death. And, and one of the lines that uh, is great in this is, um, I, think, I think Gamora is talking about, we have to save our friends. And Nebula says, all you guys do is argue with each other. You're not friends. And Drax says, no, we're family. And it's good to see that the Guardians of the Galaxy understand that, even even when the Avengers don't. Um, The way the movie successfully balances comedy and sincerity is just so perfectly done. The comedy never outweighs the sincerity, and vice versa. I love how the franchise itself has developed because James Gunn could have easily replicated the first movie for the second and just done a standard sequel with you know the same jokes and the same kind of setup but instead we get this more familial Guardians team each with their own insecurities and issues but try still trying to find this family this place of family there's a deep emotional meaning to this movie that's rarely spoken about because it's so funny. And the cast are great comedians, and this is reflected in Drax 
being more outspokenly comedic this time around because they've realised that Dave Bautista is genuinely brilliant at comedy. But I think they've also realised that Chris Pratt is really great at the serious emotional beats necessary. Um, And honestly, this movie looks amazing. It sounds incredible. And it has some really, really complex emotional beats. And it's just perfect. It's just a perfect movie. It's, It's really difficult because you it's really difficult to rank it because it's so different to anything else that's kind of in the MCU it's it's so different to the first guardians movie it's familiar but different and it's just really special um and a lot of people do talk about the comedy and i guess that's why i wanted to focus a little bit more on the more emotional beats because they really resonated with me um and so hopefully they resonate with other people too I really enjoy the fact that this movie is an extension of the previous movies. You know, like it's not just, oh, hey, here's another adventure for them. Hey, here's another adventure for them. And how are they going to develop as a family? How are they going to develop with each other, not just themselves individually, but how are each of their separate dynamics going to meld and mesh with each other's dynamics? And in the end, really try to make them stronger as a team, stronger as a family. Uh, And I think, that's something that James Gunn's really understands about his movie uh, because he's really made the Guardians him, his own product. He's really made them unique, uh, completely separate from their source material. And it works. It works for him because he understands it. He's creating it. He has free creative license. And it makes us want to invest ourselves more in the Guardians and what their new adventures will be, especially with the culmination of Infinity War and what will happen in Endgame. Who knows what's gonna, what the future of the Guardians holds. Podcasters Assemble Probably is a production of the We Can Make This Work Probably podcast network. This episode edited and produced by me, Troidal Power. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to join the initiative and contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble Probably by looking us up on Twitter as at Casters Assemble. Submissions are always open. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check the show notes for links to all the places you can find them online.
Special thanks to executive producer Tyler Thornton for keeping this show on track. But yeah, not since the first movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Jeff Bridges as Obadiah, the bad guy, has this been, like, such a cool casting choice. The only way it could have been better is if Sean Connery were involved somehow. Because Sean Connery makes everything better. Especially if he's... Podcasters Assemble probably will return in Spider-Man Homecoming. Really, the biggest villain moment of this film is when Kurt Russell destroys Dairy Queen. Why, Kurt Russell? Why would you do that? He's an evil man. Evil!